Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Monday, July 15th, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andrea Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Today's interview was hosted by our now pretty regular correspondent, Adam Bristol. Welcome back to Inquiring Minds. Thank you so much. I'm having a great time. So, you know, we live in San Francisco and we often see these cars driving around uh, that presumably are collecting data as they're becoming driverless. Um, I've recently been writing a, a lecture on big data and how we've gone from this model of, you know, having a hypothesis about how something works, then, you know, designing an experiment, finding the right sample size, you know, look, collecting the data and then analyzing the data to basically letting the data drive the problems so, or drive the approach. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for a long time, we didn't make a lot of progress in terms of driverless vehicles. Until I think people had this insight where all of a sudden, what if you, what if you, instead of trying to program a computer to be able to drive around, what if you took a whole bunch of data and fed it through the computer and use this kind of big data approach to solve the problem? Well, that's been an important part of the advancements. They've needed great sensor technology to sense the environment around them, as well as incredibly good processing speeds to then crunch those numbers well in real time as the as the cars are moving. Um, so, so all all those things have sort of converged to a point today where it seems like these things are becoming a lot uh, more reality than and hype. And, and certainly that is the way it feels if you walk around San Francisco city streets and a number of other select cities like Pittsburgh and Phoenix, where these cars are now among us. They're not just science fiction dreams. And so um, that's why I was just so thrilled and and, and, and to do this interview with uh, author Dan Albert. So Dan Albert's book is called, Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? You know, um, <laughs> no. And, um, you know, I, I came into this interview and like, you know, we've talked about this before in other interviews. Like, I'm a techno-optimist. I am just super excited. I want, you know, uh, I'm excited for the next new thing. I'm an early adopter. And I probably drank the Kool-Aid a little bit on these driverless cars, you know, and I just uh, – but I think Dan's book is a 
far more uh, grounded and historically informed look at not just the notion of a driverless car, which goes back far earlier than just the 2005 DARPA challenge that I think that me short-sightedness thought that's where it all began, but rather the challenges to really make this uh, at scale a sort of dominant form of transportation. In his words, he'd say, we're trying to make wicked smart cars for wicked dumb roads. And it didn't always have to be that way, but that's the state we're in today, that our our infrastructure is not well-suited for driverless cars, and yet we're going to have to make cars to try to navigate that terrain. And so coming out of the interview with him, I think I have a more... Uh, you know, sanguine, uh, more reserved optimism for what these companies are trying to achieve. I'm very pleased to welcome my guest today. Dan Albert is the author and historian who has covered the automotive industry and the culture of cars for N Plus One magazine. He's the author of the wonderfully titled new book, Are We There Yet? The American Automobile, Past, Present, and Driverless. Dan, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks, Adam. I'm excited to be on. I've been really looking forward to this interview, largely because I, I found your book truly excellent, but also because I know that you and I have a few things in common. Like you, I didn't have mechanically inclined parents, and I taught myself to change my own oil. And also, my first car was a 1986 Saab 900S in rose quartz. No way. Yeah. So in the very beginning of his, Dan's book, he t describes uh, a much beloved car of his, a Saab, and uh Everything you wrote about it, I just really remembered my own first car from uh, my high school days. So in, in this book and in your many contributions to N Plus One magazine, I would say you've really written and critically appraised the culture of cars over time as much as the technological progression of cars over time. Why is the car culture in America so compelling to you? Well, it's interesting to me because I very early on felt like it was the thing, the technology that uh, structures everything about the, the country, everything about our, our daily lives. And, you know, I grew up in the suburbs and, and uh, I felt that isolation a lot of kids feel where you can't get anywhere. Um, and yet I, I had my matchboxes as a kid and, and, you know, my Hot Wheels tracks and all of that. So I had really this love-hate relationship with the car from the very beginning. and it really just, I, I wanted to understand that. I wanted to understand where my feelings were coming from and also how uh, uh, the country as a whole became so embedded with the automobile. I think what's intriguing about your writing over your career is certainly, and as reflected in this book, is I guess kind of the twisted and uh, unusual history of cars as we know them today. And I think one thing that really struck me is that a lot of What's new is what's been forgotten. A lot of ideas that seem so present and so contemporary, things like ride sharing, open source where there's a, uh, a culture of tinkering, these things can go back even to the 19th century. I was wondering if you can give a few examples uh, of the book of where something that we think is so contemporary today actually has its kind of historical antecedents even going back to the 19th century. Well, I think... Um you know, one of the things, uh, you know, you mentioned open source. Uh, one of the things that was fascinating about the, uh, the Model T and Henry Ford is he was very much against patents. He had a big fight with the uh, uh, Seldonites, who were a, a patent 
uh, group. They had actually patented the automobile, if you can imagine it. Um, and he was very willing to bring people into the factories, show them uh, what he was doing. And then also a lot of people describe the, the Model T as a kind of unfinished car, sort of a platform to actually make a car. And there were thousands upon thousands of accessories you could get. You know, you could you could get a uh, another transmission that would go on to the existing transmission, give you more gears. You could buy uh, you could turn it into a snowmobile. Basically, you buy tracks and and skis. Um, and and he really thought that was what people needed, just a framework uh, for cars. I, I think the other thing, you know, we talk about, uh, uh, ride hailing, uh, is that some of the earliest, uh, cars like, like, um, a guy named Dudgeon had a, uh, a steam wagon that we don't really even think of as a, as a car, but, um, it was essentially a jitney, uh, a, a hailed ride that took you from New York city out onto long Island, um, kind of a, a minibus, if you will. Um, so there's there's a lot of things that, again, we like, as you said, we think of as new, but really have been tried and often dropped and and discovered again, uh, which is to me very interesting. I'm glad you brought up the so-called steamers. That was an early technology, primarily in the 1890s, if I remember correctly from your book. And you quote some sources saying that. The steamers failed largely from regula regulation and not necessarily from mechanical failures or mechanical inefficiencies, which in a way echoes some of the same sentiments today from the autonomous or driverless car companies, which are really looking for just the freedom to do their experimentation and technological development and not wanting for the government intervention. I think that's right. And, and you know, the, the important dimension of that is is safety. So uh, the fellow you're referencing is a guy named Clay McShane, a really uh, respected historian in this field, does a lot of urban history and the history of transportation. And he looked at the antagonism towards steamers from city governments. And this actually emerged out of uh, steamboats. Steamboats had a nasty habit of exploding uh, because uh, the steamboat companies were, you know, just pushing too hard and, and things would blow up. So uh, that was kind of like the airliner crash of the day. You know, the steamboat, the latest steamboat uh, blew up. So cities were not that excited about having these uh, cars on their streets and they kept them off. And, and, you know, they were around from the 1860s, 1870s. Uh, and they just couldn't get a foothold. And, and the, the analogy you to draw, you draw there to the uh, driverless car companies is exactly right. Um, the only difference is cities and states and the federal government are really stepping back and letting these companies experiment on our streets. Um, you know, the governor of New York kind of turned over New York City to a company called Cruise Automation, which is owned by General Motors. And said, "Yep, go ahead, have at it, have have the the streets, and give it a try." And didn't really ask the people in the city, uh, so the mayor wasn't happy. The people of New York weren't happy. Um, so, so the parallel is absolutely there. I think the outcome in terms of the government response is different. Yeah, and and I'd love to, you know, maybe we can hold this for just a moment because here in the Bay Area, where I am, you know, there are there is a lot of interest in autonomous vehicles. I keep saying that, but really driverless vehicles. And um, in many ways, they've been kind of 
not pushed out of California, but they've been attracted to places like Arizona, where there's been a more of a come hither deregulation allowing them uh, to 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 work, and so a lot of the large companies have moved over to places like Phoenix. So I guess there is some I guess some differences at least at the state level. But I, I want to ask you one I guess sort of a provocative question. Again, I'm you know sort of I, I think of I thought I knew the the history here. I always thought the history of cars was this course straight line teleological progression of increasing vehicle capabilities that then would lead to the driverless cars we're dreaming about today. So everything from cruise control and anti-lock brakes to some sort of driver assist on, on parking or, or visibility into blind spots. But tell me why that straight line that I just described is actually not true. Well, I guess I would say the, um, the technology certainly evolves, right? So our computers are smaller and, and faster and whatnot. But one of the things you realize as you look back over the history is that a lot of the things we think of as requiring um, this high technology really were available um, decades ago. So in other words, we didn't have super fast computers, but we certainly had the ability in the 1950s to provide all of the safety and convenience uh, that we now think of as coming with our, our, you know, 21st century driverless cars. So, for example, in the 1950s, uh, uh, RCA, the electronics company, and General Motors got together and did experiments and, and essentially showed it was quite possible to develop a car that you could take your hands off the wheel, take your foot off the gas, and, and have it go down the highway uh, with no problem. And this kind of work was continued up until the 1990s. The federal government um, ran a fleet of Buicks down a highway in California, and, and they just showed that, you know what, this can be done. I think the, the difference is those technologies, the, those ideas were about the entire system. So in other words, you had both the road and the vehicle becoming smarter. The thing that's going on now is, and, and you hear this from uh, sort of the Silicon Valley people who are promoting driverless cars. Well, you know, we're, we, we can't even paint lines on the highway anymore. You know, we're not going to do things like embed wires in the road or do the infrastructure necessary. Uh, to make these cars viable. So we're going to put all of those smarts and all of those electronics and all of those sensors on our machines. Now, the reality is, yes, that's higher tech. It's really cool. I mean, it's amazing what they can do. But the reason they're doing it the way they're doing it has more to do with the, the kind of present moment than with the technological ability, the technological capabilities to create a driverless car. I think that's where your analysis of where culture and technology collide is so interesting because as you describe in the book, and I, I think your quote was, and I don't have it right in front of me, but the ethos today is one of wicked smart cars on wicked dumb roads, which I thought was a, a great way of putting it. But you know, the the idea that we had the possibility to create infrastructure changes to allow for safer, potentially driverless, or certainly uh, reduce the type of, of, of traffic uh, or the fatalities that are sort of er the human error part, and opted not to do that for whatever cultural reason. And now we're almost relying on 
can we put wicked smart cars that can overcome all of our foibles and all of our you know poor design you know that really seems like it was a cultural consequence versus a technological shortcoming i i think you're right and and i appreciate that you found this idea that the culture drives the technology uh compelling because i think this is very true and as you said this idea of a linear progression we tend and historians social scientists call it uh, technological determinism so a technology is invented and it kind of ping pongs its way through society and changes everything and it can often look that way kind of as you experience uh, uh, the world but as you investigate these things, you realize that these technologies, they, I shouldn't even say technology, these capabilities have existed for a very long time, but nobody particularly wanted them. So you go back to the 1950s again. General Motors had no reason to make driverless cars. They were selling as many cars as they could build, and they were the most profitable company in the world. Today, they're struggling. They're really struggling to sell cars to people. So they're looking at driverless cars as a different business model. It's the idea, it's essentially the idea of the Ubers and the Lyfts. They'll have driverless cars, they'll own these fleets, and they will use them as, as ride-hailing uh, machines. And that's precisely, you mentioned Arizona, you know, that's precisely what Google's doing right now in Arizona. They're running test autonomous vehicles as ride-hailing vehicles. And you described, too, this Vision Zero initiative in New York City, which is a somewhat a, I guess, a counterpoint to the just kind of laissez-faire experimentation. And I was fascinated by your discussion of the Vision Zero, and, and we'll describe what that is in just one moment, but I listened to a lot of Yankees baseball games on my phone, and I kept hearing <laughs> endless commercials for Vision Zero initiative, which seemed like a nut, perfectly fine public service announcement. Mm -hmm. But there's a, I think, a deeper meaning and a deeper emphasis on, again, these sort of collective infrastructure style improvements we can make to a car culture that is very much uh, distinct from, can we just make cars smarter and smarter and smarter? So I was wondering if you could talk just a moment about Vision Zero, what that means to you just sort of of the car culture. Right. So, so Vision Zero actually comes out of uh, Sweden, the same place that, you know, we got seatbelts and uh, uh, we also got Saabs. Um the idea and, and the, the kind of um, mission statement is no human life is worth mobility. In other words, the way we do things now and the way traffic engineers uh, look at things is they say, okay, so we have cars, we want to move them around. Should we put a stop sign here? Should we put a traffic light here? And they only begin to add those essentially safety features, stop signs, stop lights, if they feel that there is a hazard. So they, they privilege mobility. Mobility comes first. And then they say, okay, well, how safe can we make it? And Vision Zero essentially says, how safe can we make it? And then we'll have mobility. Uh, the, the result, and, and you know, one of the things I say is, it's really hard to promote Vision Zero because basically Vision Zero is about having a lot of meetings and having just congested, slow-moving traffic, slow-moving automobiles, uh, which is just doesn't fit with the whole idea of the car culture, which is you know about speeding and danger. Um, 
it, it, so again, you talked about you know different ways of achieving these these goals that we're going to achieve with driverless cars, the safety goals. It's quite clear that we could have achieved those goals with you know no RCA electronics or or anything at all. We could have achieved those safety goals, and we can still achieve those safety goals by rebuilding our infrastructure with the concept of first zero fatalities and then how much mobility can we have with zero fatalities there's some uh comparable program in here in san francisco that uh i'm blanking on the name but i'm quite certain we have something that's along the same lines as the vision zero initiative in new york do you have a sense of whether early data is suggesting it's having an impact are traffic uh accidents or traffic fatalities down or is it kind of within the normal error and it's hard to really make heads or tails of it Oh, well, uh, the short answer is it, it absolutely works. The basic idea is traffic calming. Uh, so you rebuild the infrastructure in a way that slows down motor vehicles. Now, there are other elements of it, um, things like you know looking at speed limit laws and, and, and red light cameras and all these other elements. But that core idea that the physical infrastructure should reduce traffic speeds and therefore you know eliminate uh, road deaths uh is is just well supported it's been done in europe it's been done in the united states so we know it works getting to zero is of course an iterative process and and you know takes time but we know that as long as we do all of the things we know how to do yeah we absolutely will get to uh, a far safer far safer streets. If there's something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp online counseling can help. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialized in issues such as depression, anxiety, relationships, trauma, anger, family conflicts, LGBT matters, grief, self-esteem, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment and get help at your own time and at your own pace. Anything you share is confidential. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions as well as chat and text with your therapist. If for some reason you're not happy with your counselor, though, you can request a new one at any time for no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Inquiring Minds listeners even get 10% off your first month with discount code MINDS. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com minds. Then simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash minds. Today's episode is sponsored by Rippling. Every minute you spend updating your company's employee data and systems is a minute that you don't spend on your core job. Thankfully, now there's Rippling. It's the first platform that combines all of your HR and IT systems together. And when you combine HR and IT, magic happens. Imagine if you could hire someone and take care of all of their HR needs, including payroll, health insurance, and 401k, all in as little as 90 seconds. Same goes for your IT. You can order their computer and create their accounts in all the apps you use like Gmail, GitHub, and Slack, all in one unified onboarding flow. That's how easy Rippling makes running your business. It's also why Rippling won PC Mag's Editor's Choice Award and is the top-rated HR and IT software on G2 Crowd. Stop burning valuable time on admin work. Use Rippling and your HR and IT will run like a well-oiled machine. If you are looking for an easier way to supercharge your employees, go to rippling.com minds and you get 20% off. 
That's rippling.com slash minds for 20% off. You know, one of the more frustrating elements of your book, again, this was all new history to me, new information for me, is that just as you described, there's been a lot of extant technologies in different stages of development, which all of could have been implemented probably for, for the for the better, but never quite, you know, kind of reached a, either a critical mass or a critical level of support to really be implemented. We all know the electric cars, battery technologies over time and things of that nature. But one you mentioned that really made me pull my hair out was vehicle-to-vehicle communication. So tell our listeners what vehicle-to-vehicle communication is. And I guess I'd ask you, why couldn't we roll that out in just, say, long-haul tractor-trailers first before trying to get into every passenger car on the road? Uh, well, I'm sorry you're pulling your hair out, but I com- <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I wish I had hair to pull out. But uh, I I. I- Definitely understand your frustration, and I will tell you, I've spoken to people in the regulatory uh, agencies, and they have the same frustration. Uh, So vehicle-to-vehicle communication, in the simplest terms, means that vehicles have, um, usually we think of radio uh, transmitters and transponders that tell them not to occupy the same place at the same time. I mean, it's, it's the most obvious basic uh, concept. As you say, we could have these on trucks before even having them on passenger cars. One of the major reasons we don't is trucking companies don't want them. Uh, the automotive industry hasn't wanted to install them. Um, and, and this is un- unfortunately kind of the, the standard operating procedure. Uh, the obvious example or the, you know, the classic example is safety belts. Uh, they were available. We knew they worked and the car companies uh, didn't want to install them. Um, and, and one of the reasons was they didn't want people to think their cars were unsafe. So, you know, the idea of putting a, a seatbelt on reminds you that actually what you're doing is a little dangerous. But coming back to the idea of vehicle-to-vehicle communication, it in fact has been pushed by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration for decades now. The latest, um, I, I call it a stalling tactic from the auto companies, is to say, uh, well, we're going to bring up 5G. So as you probably know, 5G is the latest cell phone technology, right? And um, what 5G does for the auto companies, and and it will work for vehicle-to-vehicle communications, but what it does for them is gives them an opportunity to put all kinds of new services, uh, entertainment and so forth, into the cars. So it's a moneymaker for them. Whereas little radio transponders where the cars talk to each other doesn't really do them any good. So I think a lot of it is driven by industry intransigence as well as industry thinking about, well, what can we do to make money? And it's interesting, you know, I'm certainly entranced like a lot of people. We see these cars driving around our city here with all their LIDAR and all their gadgets on. They really look like something extraordinary. But you highlighted to me, or at least reminded me that one thing that V2V can do that a LIDAR-based system or camera-based system cannot is see, quote unquote, see or be aware of cars outside its line of sight. And it just seems like, you know, head slap, 
that seems like an absolutely perfect type of system and not necessarily mutually exclusive from a LIDAR-based system, but one which would provide just critical information, certainly with regards to safety. Yeah, again, you're absolutely right. Uh, they can see around corners, so to speak. This comes back to the reason we have the particular kind of technology we're developing uh, today for driverless cars. Uh, one is it's about profit and it's about you know having the driverless car that you can then sell on. It's also about the origins uh, of these vehicles. It comes really out of the defense, uh, something called DARPA from the Pentagon, their research uh, program. And what they were looking for was a driverless vehicle that would let them, um, you know, not have to pay drivers to ship fuel to Iraq and so forth. It's a dangerous thing. Well, for that mission, vehicle to vehicle communication doesn't do you any good. Right, because nobody's going to install an infrastructure in a war zone or, or whatever country you've decided to uh, uh, operate in. So, what really has driven the kind, if you excuse the pun, the kind of technology we're developing, is the original purpose and the need for um, for profit. Do you have a sense of whether the real luminaries in the uh, driverless car field? Lewandowski, Elon Musk, Waymo folks, Cruise folks, are they aware of the history? Do they know of Vladimir Zworykin or Norman Belgettis? Uh, you, you would certainly have to ask them, but uh, I, I get the sense that they are not uh, historians. Uh, I, I think they um, are focused only on the great things they're going to do for the world? <laughs> you know, it's a very difficult question. I, I I certainly think they, it's hard to say. I think they really might believe their own rhetoric, which is the reason they're doing this is to save lives. That's what they all say. Oh, we're here to save lives. Thank goodness we've come up with this. And Elon Musk has famously said, anybody that tells you that auto his autopilot, which isn't actually a driverless vehicle, but they call it autopilot at Tesla, uh, if, if you say anything bad about it, you're killing people. You're killing people because you're making them drive vehicles that are less safe. Uh, so um, do these guys think about history or understand the history of the technology or the society? I kind of think not, but you really would have to <laughs> ask them. Well, I sincerely hope they get their hands on this book because it is um, a very balanced and thoroughly researched history of a field where they may very well find that there's some old wine now in new bottles. People have thought about the safety benefits of a driverless car. People have thought about even the logistical or practical improvements in mobility. I mean, the very, you know, the, the Pontiacs going down the I-15 or the I-5 in San Diego where they're bumper to bumper, that's part of the rhetoric we hear today too of in improving the mobility options in our crowded cities. So I sincerely hope that they get their hands on this to hear what a lot of smart people were thinking in earlier eras. Well, I appreciate the pitch. And I think, you, you know, the, the example you give of these, uh, these GM cars running down the highway uh, is another example where the goal there was to maximize the throughput on the highway, to let cars be inches apart because there was a congestion, huge congestion problem, not enough highway space uh, in the mid-90s. 
that's not what these vehicles are about because they are really kind of lone wolves. Each, each car will operate on its own. Um, these, the, uh, test, uh, on the highway that you describe in California was really about getting cars to work together as a, as a fleet or a platoon. And, you know, that really is the narrative that I knew, which is there was this desert challenge that DARPA put on in 2004. I, in my mind, you know, very, you know, uninformed, I thought that was really the birth of the driverless car, uh, um, you know, concept. But clearly it went back far, far earlier than that. And you described the the sort of the tension between the collectivist um, you know, infrastructure versus the Ayn Randian robocar, autonomous robocar that we have today. But I wanted to ask you, are there any areas that you describe in the book that are distinctly different in other countries? We know about Sweden and their attention to safety, but are there areas that as you project forward into the future, you feel that other countries ha- are, are offering a very different vision of the car culture future? That's an interesting question because for a long time now, uh, we've been seeing European cities in particular uh, begin to, um, you know, people use the phrase ban cars, but either congestion price or uh, restrict where cars uh, are allowed to drive within their cities. Um, We're slowly actually beginning to see that in New York uh, and other cities, and New York is uh, just this week. Uh, we hear now a lot about congestion pricing in in the city there. So I think other countries will be ahead of the United States, um, uh, but maybe we will get there. The other point I'd make, though, is that uh, we are the automobile is deeply embedded here. You know, it's one thing for say Norway to to say, well, you know, no more internal combustion cars. Norway doesn't have a car uh, uh, industry. Uh, it's one thing for uh, China to say we're going to go all electric, which they're really trying to do, but China doesn't uh, produce oil. The United States is a number one uh, producer of oil in the world. So there are a lot of things, you know, very, very real and practical things uh, about the United States, about our economy um, that make us. Uh, quite different, and will probably continue to make us quite different uh, from the rest of the world, and and that resonates with interacts with the car culture here. You know, we we get to have these great cars, um, and it has a lot to do with who we are as a country. Yeah, no, that's interesting point. Uh, you know, certainly there are other oil producing countries, but they probably don't have the same interacting variables that we have here in the States. I think having major automobile producers is a really important factor. And it'll be very interesting to see how the, the, you know, the kind of the congestion pricing model, which I think is already reality for several years in London, how that will impact even the economics of some of these ride hailing services. Because I know New York City has made a big issue out of the amount of traffic that's really due to the rise of the uh, ride-sharing vehicles on the road, perhaps, you know, not just replacing, but exceeding the number of cabs that were once there. And it definitely feels that way in San Francisco too. Yes, the number of cabs are down by two thirds, but the number of Uber and Lyfts that are driving around uh, is, is really, we didn't, we didn't fulfill that vision of um, reducing the number, the amount of traffic on the roads. Absolutely. And I, just posted something on N Plus One's uh, website today, um, talk, 
yeah, about Lyft. Oh, good. I'm glad you, you saw it. That you know they've just had this IPO, and the narrative behind the IPO is we're going to replace automobiles. People are going to stop buying private automobiles, and they're going to all take Ubers and Lyfts. Um, what we're finding and what the, the data shows is that Uber and Lyft does get some people to stop driving. You know, they'll take an Uber instead of driving their car, but it also takes people off of mass transit. They take an Uber instead of walking or bicycling. And the most interesting thing is about 10 to 15% of people in survey say, well, I wouldn't have taken that trip if I hadn't been able to hail an Uber. And so it actually induces more travel and it shifts from mass transit, which is, you know, highly efficient uh, for moving people around uh, and puts these people into automobiles. So they're not helping. Yeah, it's supply driven demand. There's no doubt that especially in these urban areas where there is an abundance of available vehicles, often within just a few minutes of clicking the button, that it makes it uh, very easy to just you know, call a car whenever you need it. And therefore that it kind of, it's, it's a system, it's a, it feeds upon itself. So there's more riders and more cars and more riders and more cars. And so it, it, it I guess that's the other side of the coin, perhaps we, they're victims of their own success. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, they, they make traveling easier and cheaper by car, uh, car travel easier and cheaper. And so the cheaper and easier something is to access and purchase, the more people do it. So. I want to, as I finish the book, I came out of it with, I'd say, a much more nuanced view of not just the history of automobiles here in the States, but a, I think, a more uh, skeptical and less Pollyanna-ish view of where we're going in the future. So I guess another way to say it is, I wasn't sure if I should come out optimistic or pessimistic. And I guess I'd like to ask you that question, having written for 10 plus years on the automotive industry and the culture, and, and now really in this kind of almost a magnum opus of my, my words, not yours, but you know, how, where's your head today? Are you optimistic about the car future? Or are you rather pessimistic or do you, are you in between? Well, I guess I'd ask you what you think a happy car future would look like. Would it be a future without cars or would it be a future in which everybody gets to you know, keep driving whatever they want and, and enjoy an automotive lifestyle? I'd say my view is it's somewhere between the Futurama of the cartoon series by Matt Groening and somewhere in the Futurama of the 1950s, I think it was, uh, um, you know, uh, World's Fair. Was it 1939 right. World's uh, Fair? Yep, absolutely. 1939 yeah. World's Fair. And, uh, you know, where you people are in cars, but there is this, uh, you know, all those visions we see, you know, from all the CES meetings and the automotive meetings where these, they're, they're, ve they're vehicular structures, but they're, they don't, they don't conform to what we have grown up with where forward seating, one driver, passenger, you know, where people are almost in this little, well, you know, kind of what we, ha we had some examples in your book from the 1890s, almost like a drawing room on wheels. Yes, exactly. And I love that, that vehicle because it was Henry Ford's wife's uh, uh, car and it really was like sitting in a drawing room. Well, I guess what I think of is um, a world, what, what, you know, optimistically, what I would picture is a world in which we are able to uh, commute, travel around the city, um, and, and go about our daily lives without driving, whether that means being in a little electric pod or uh, uh, being on a, a, a fast train or a, a, even a bus or a bicycle. 
Um, I see that as being our, you know, everyday lives and, and we're all healthy and happy. But I would also like us to have in the garage, in the driveway, a car that we get into and we drive, not one that drives itself. Now, certainly all of these active safety features that we have now where we have automatic braking and lane keeping and a lot of things that, that you know, are, are kind of uh, much like seatbelts. They're there when the driver does something wrong. Um, but we still get to drive. And I noticed this when I was, um, when my daughter, my oldest daughter was learning to drive. You know, she, she spends all of her time kind of consuming social media and, and being in constant contact, uh, persistent connectivity. When she's in the car, it's just her and the car and the windshield and she's um she's working in a sense she's got her mind on something other than um you know what's the latest instagram and i i think driving remains that it's it's this almost meditative state where you have to think about it just enough that your mind is able to wander and and do other things and i think that really is a um a useful human experience. I wonder if we can maintain that um, kind of uh, privileged space the way you describe it, because cars today even have heads-up displays. You could imagine the types of augmented reality uh, capabilities that could add in, and I could imagine many, many types of distractions to compete for your attention, even something as important as driving a car. But uh, I hope you're right. We hope we both live long enough to see. Exactly. I just want to remind our listeners that Dan Albert's forthcoming book, Are We There Yet? The American Automobile Past, Present, and Driverless will be available at booksellers everywhere. Dan Albert, thank you so much for being on Inquiring Minds. I really appreciate it. Any day I'm talking about cars is a good day, so thank you. So one of the things that struck me about your interview uh, is this notion that if we don't really understand the history of where driverless cars came from, um, we can kind of make some of the same mistakes. And it reminded me of a quote that I read uh, from Henry Ford, who basically said that if he had just paid attention to essentially, you know, the data of, of, of where they had been up until up until then, um, he would have just invented a better horse-drawn carriage. <laughs> you know, there, there, but but in order to, you know, invent a car, he had to take this leap and he had to completely sort of rethink transportation. And he had to convince people that this was a better option. I mean, it sounds like that's kind of what Dan is saying where, where we are in terms of driverless cars. Well, that's exactly where we are today. And that's a pretty challenging thing because there are a lot of big ideas and a lot of big ideas are ambitious but maybe ultimately don't work or don't reach the scale that certainly drivered cars are today. And what I took from his book are so two main themes I took from Dan's book are first that there is a much longer history in the idea of a driverless car than certainly I had appreciated. I mean, this goes back well into the early 20th century, certainly certainly had been almost matured with working prototypes in the middle of the 20th century. So it's not just these kind of uh, Sebastian Thrun and people in you know Google and Waymo and these Uber cars of the, the last 10 years. This goes back far earlier. Um, and so in a little bit, what's new is what's been forgotten. And, and 
a great precedent for, or a really useful precedent for, how do we think about a future that, assuming that we can get to some wicked smart cars that are, can work on wicked dumb roads, you know, how can they then be integrated into what is going to be in the early parts, far more drivered cars and then some driverless cars, and that proportion is going to be, they're going to have more uh, driver drivered cars early on, is the introduction of the car itself at a time when it was primarily horse-drawn buggies and trolleys and cable cars, um, there were a lot of issues, not just about flow of traffic and, and right-of-way, but then even legal uh, aspects of who, who's at fault if a car hits somebody or causes property damage. I mean, these were things that it's kind of hard to believe today, but at the time when you had Henry Ford and the Model T starting to become widespread, these were legal gray areas that needed to be worked out. And in a way, it's a bit of old wine and new bottles because we're going to be thinking about some of those exact same liability issues and and just logistics issues if driverless cars can really reach kind of the mass scale that we think they could. And, you know, that also highlights the fact that Henry Ford or, or the inventors of the automobile were facing the same problem. The infrastructure was built for horse-drawn vehicles. Uh, and so, you know, here, there you had dumb roads, quote unquote, from the perspective of cars as well. And the car was so successful that eventually we built roads for the cars. So, you know, is there any indication that, you know, the driverless car is such a huge leap forward that we will change the infrastructure in order to make it happen? I don't know. That's a great idea. And it makes a lot of sense because you could have... Um, as Dan writes about in his book, magnetic strips, other sensors, things that are part of the roadways that could complement or supplement all the different um, uh, uh, technological innovations and sensors that could be in the cars themselves. That would certainly go a long way. Um, it's not unprecedented. Obviously, we've laid down um, fiber optic cables in cities where we used to, you know, dial up internet over the phone lines. And so, you know, I think it comes with... Uh, the convenience, the will, the the capital. There's certainly a lot of money going into this, and I, you know it seems like a lot of the major car companies now are, are are getting involved in this. It'll be interesting to see if that you know another thing in Dan's book is that a lot of these um, waves of innovation can can lose momentum pretty fast in the major car companies. It's easier for them to fall back on traditional business models. But I think it would be great, and I could see, frankly. Um, places like Singapore or or Scandinavia or some places where perhaps they're a little more progressive in infrastructure to sort of try some of those things out. But I would certainly welcome it. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm still kind of worried about this idea that we don't need more cars on the road. In fact, even in San Francisco, Lyft and Uber, I mean, the traffic has just gotten so much worse with the advent of these kinds of people just driving around waiting for passengers. I'm not sure that driverless vehicles will will solve that problem. Um, and you know with with places like San Francisco and and for people who are able-bodied, you know e-bikes are a great uh, option that are much less environmentally you know degrading. Uh, and And so I guess that's kind of where I, I wonder, like with climate change looming uh, uh, right around the corner or already with us, like you know is is there any indication that some of the other forces at work here are actually gonna become, important enough where a driverless vehicle just won't be a great solution? I don't know. I mean, I agree with you. I think that the ride-sharing companies have certainly been victims of their own success in a lot of the urban areas. And so where I was one of those early, the people who thought that, isn't this a great opportunity to reduce waste and um, have fewer 
fewer cars on the road because it'd be a more efficient use of the available cars. But, um, you know, it, it has attracted a lot of traffic and there's data coming out of, of first from New York City and, and more recently from San Francisco that Lyft and Uber drivers are contributing to a lot of traffic because because people come from outside of the city into them. And other modes of of, techno- of transportation, if you look at companies like Bird and Lyft and, you know, they are more multimodal. So some of them do scooters and bikes and, and, and some of them are even coming up with almost would be described as a pod on wheels somewhere between a go-kart and a real car. And so I, I guess I say that because I could imagine a future where the cars as we know them today, maybe not the sole means of getting people around in an urban environment. Now, certainly there's safety considerations with size, you know, and, and, and keeping passengers safe. But I, I could imagine a, a lot of different um, style factors that could be utilized. Um you know, to take kind of existing cars as we know them and then be the first ones to convert them into driverless kind of makes a lot of sense because I guess the infrastructure for manufacturing is already there, the robotic systems that basically build these things. But an early use case that probably doesn't get as much um, discussion in the driver, when people discuss just driverless cars at all, is long distance trucking. And Tesla has talked about long-distance trucking. There's a number of startup companies that are specifically focused on driverless long-distance trucking. That makes a lot of sense to me. Um, it is a, I'm sure I've never done it, but I could, I've taken some long road trips, some of them with you, that you can get really tired. Uh, there are, uh, there's, it's a, a, in some ways can be less complicated driving because there's kind of fewer turns. It's just kind of you in the open road. And um, I could see some of the first use cases being not of just having a driverless Camry that goes around San Francisco, but rather a long haul truck that is going, you know, cross country and could do so in a more fuel efficient safer uh, way. And so that'll be interesting to see if that happens. And of course, the consequences for our politics and our economy should that happen. Yep. All right, that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgool, Stefan Meyer Awald, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds and get an ad-free version of this show. Find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan and we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Adam Bristol. See you next week. Whatever struggles you're facing from depression and anxiety to trauma and grief, BetterHelp can connect you with a professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient you can schedule secure video or phone sessions, as well as chat and text with your therapist. And anything you share is completely confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Inquiring Minds listeners even get 10% off your first month with the discount code MINDS. So why not get started? Simply go to betterhelp.com slash minds and fill out a questionnaire to get matched with a counselor you'll love today. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.